Well. Good day to you, James. <laughs> Good day to you. We have to do kind of an intro. I have a surprise we for you. you. Oh, yeah? Yes. Oh, shit. Uh, we are not releasing this episode tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's up? Uh, oh, are you doing Bryce's? We're releasing Bryce's. Nice. So okay. I think we should Perfect. record an intro sort of giving a caveat like, this is before we knew anything about Joseph Smith, so we're going to be, like, stunned multiple times. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, do you want to do that real quick? Yeah, all right. Oh, Are this you... is talking about the Bryce episode, right? Yes. Perfect. All right, I'm marking that down. Perfect. All right. Hello, everybody. Greetings to you. We are here. At the studios, and we talk, talk about dead people. Which is just a trash can on a flotilla. Exactly. <laughs> but, this week's episode is a rather special thing. Care to explain why, Dr. James? Ah, uh, yes, a special episode, I believe. Uh, we, we have a man joining us. A man by the name of Bryce Blankenagle. Blankenoodle. And he is uh, the founder, co-editor, and owner of... I don't know. No, he's part of the Naked Mormonism podcast. It's his podcast. He's the host. He built it. Yes. (laughs) He is going to sue our ass. (laughs) Because <laughs> we only have one ass <laughs> one between the two of us. I mean, that's just Stalinism, the collective ass. <laughs> <laughs> and well, it's all for course. Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, so, yeah, we're joined by Bryce from the Naked Mormonism podcast. Yes. And uh, we talk about Mormon stuff. Yes. And uh, here's the fun yeah, thing. Yeah, go ahead. The fun thing mm-hmm. is we recorded this, like, over a month ago. <laughs> Many, many moons ago. Many moons ago. And mm-hmm. the we didn't exactly know what to do with it, but also, like, <laughs> our lives have been turned upside down multiple times yeah, recently. Yeah. Um, so, we're releasing it now, and you're going to get to listen to Bryce sort of in awe at our ignorance of Joseph Smith, and you're going to get to listen to us in awe at our own <laughs> in- ignorance about Joseph Smith. This was, we recorded this episode with Bryce before we did anything on the three-part Joseph, uh, the Joseph Mormon, that's what I almost said, the Joseph Stalin Mormon episode. Right. Joseph Smith. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Joseph Stalin Smith. So, Mm. like, it's gonna be kind of interesting for you, I assume, because it's gonna be like, you just finished listening to the three-part Joseph Smith episode, you're gonna be looking backward and observing ignorance at its finest Mm. uh, after... Uh, seeing how much we actually learned when we did the goddamn reading. <laughs> that, that should be the motto of we talk about dead people. <laughs> Ignorance at its finest. <laughs> Ignorance is strength. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But that's A great that. quote from the Wizard of Oz. Yes. Yes, my darlings. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we're just going to roll it and uh, let you consume Enjoy. that. And this yeah. is what's funny is that we're going to go on and record next week's episode right now. So like holy shit. As soon as this cuts, we're going to be making brand new content for you and it's going to be Cambyses. I hope you're ready. Are you ready, James? 
I'm ready. <laughs> we're using Cambyses as an adjective or a verb. Uh, we're using him as a sex object. <laughs> so I suppose we should record a clap. Yes. Yes. Isn't is that is that etiquette? That's been our etiquette. Take anyway. my clap. Are you uh, gonna give? You're gonna give me your clap. I'm okay. gonna I'm gonna um, give you my clap. I'm gonna count to three, and then we're all gonna clap all at once. Awesome. All right. One, two, three, clap. I clapped on three when you said oh, clap. I'm sorry. Come on. Jesus All right, it's Christ. no big deal. I'll find it. I know. I guess I, I'm not a professional oh by God. any stretch of imagination. Well, well, you're more professional than us. That's true. <laughs> James, I don't I'm know what's up the, with your the, audio. Could you turn up your gain a little bit? Uh, I, yes, I can gain. Just a little some. bit. You're just a tiny bit quiet. How about <clears> now? That's a little better. Oh well. <laughs> Well, okay. Well, we'll make do. He'll just be the whimpering little voice in the background, and well, that's the rest of my life. We'll make fun of you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could turn up the uh, gain on individual callers on this thing, but it doesn't look like you can. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to be sending you my audio over. <clears throat> um, the audio you're hearing is a shitty little headset mic. I have my actual uh, desktop mic that's recording separately. Okay, that sounds good to me. Okay, well, I suppose you're wondering why we're here. <laughs> I think we're all wondering that. Uh, if I weren't running this discussion, well, I'm wondering too, anyway. But uh, basically, we're just going to do like, this is the structure I set up. So we do a greeting, uh, you do a little short intro about who you are. I know we've done it before, but, uh, you know, new listeners, whatnot. Do, yeah, we'll, sure. do, we'll do the questions, leave everything open for discussion, very light, very loose. I'm going to decide what to do with this later, decide if it's you know, patron-only content or if we release it as a special episode or something. And okay. then we'll close. I don't expect to go over an hour. We'll close with a prayer, you. though, of course. <laughs> hmm. So mote it be. Uh, you know, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the, uh, like the Masonic Amen. Oh, really? Ooh. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Hmm. I had a I had a friend who uh, broke into a Masonic temple and stole their sacred gloves. <laughs> and every male, every male in my family besides my dad is a Freemason. Wow. wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And something weird that happened once was, uh, well, it only happened once because it only happened once was uh, I was at my grandfather's funeral and they were giving the eulogy. And the Masons came out with their skirts or their kilts or whatever and everything, and it was all very, <laughs> all very solemn. And then I think they called my grandfather, who was named William, I think they called him David. Because apparently yeah, they take on different names, and I didn't know that. And I, thought, I started laughing. I was like uh, 10 or something like that. And, at my grandfather's funeral because I'm like, they got his name wrong. <laughs> yeah, uh, so that was awkward, but... Uh, you know, God rest uh, David's soul. <laughs> Whoever that is, uh, yeah, really, uh, yeah, felt the gravity of the situation at ten years old. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, so, uh, so here's here's my here's my current situation with Joseph Smith. Um, I have listened to your podcast uh, a little bit, but it was a while ago, and I've only recently mm -hmm. started researching Joseph Smith for myself, um, and. <laughs> He's an uh, interesting dude. <laughs> just uh, peeked over the rabbit hole, then, just, did we? Just had a little, had a little look, and just like most of our people on the show who 
are famous and whatnot is once you start digging, man, it's like you can never, never find the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Though I don't, I'm not familiar with uh, how James uh, feels about Joseph Smith or what he what he knows about him. James, do, what do you know about Joseph Smith? <laughs> uh, I I don't know much. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I've, I'm kind of on the fence about this guy, but I I could be enlisted in his uh, his followers, depending on how this talk goes today. Um, oh, yeah. I'm definitely open to it. Bryce, we have an right. open candidate for conversion. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Yep. I'll uh, I'll just jump on over to the uh, to the central time zone and, mm-hmm. and dunk you, and we'll we'll call it good. Perfect. You got to jump and on we'll your bike, you put for on all your of white your dead shirt. relatives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's actually a funny story. So when I was going to school, uh, there were these there were these Mormon guys on campus, and the first time I ever saw them was on Halloween. And they were riding around on their bikes with their shirts. <laughs> yeah, you know like, where this is costume, going, guys. <laughs> That's what I said. It's a great costume. They're like, oh, actually, you know, it's not a costume. Like, Would you like to talk? And I'm like, I'm on my way to Latin. I can't talk. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, anyway, so the purpose of this of the purpose of this Q and A is to ask somebody who knows something about Joseph Smith more than we do mm. uh, about Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I wanted to start off with the one of the more salacious questions. And uh, basically, Bryce, how has your relationship changed with Joseph Smith throughout your life? Give us a little bit of your story. Yeah, um, I grew up just, just loving this man. I just couldn't get enough of him. All the beautiful portraits of him standing there, you know, just looking so beautiful with his Book of Mormon in hand oh. and a quill in the other hand and, mm. you know, button up tuxedo and everything just just mm, so snazzy this guy is just yeah i i know i know i know right um i'm not making fun of you i just it's interesting as is the case with so many relationships once you really get to know the person um you know that that feeling sours a little bit and suddenly the looks don't really don't don't appeal as much anymore and then you know you you age a little bit more and you realize um you know what the fuck am i doing in this relationship (laughs) this guy is an asshole uh, he's just stealing my money. He's uh, he's just a piece of shit human being. He's fucking dozens of other women. Just you, you know. And so then then you, you have you go through this really harsh breakup cycle mm. where you're just like you know you you see the more disgusting side of this human being, but all your family doesn't. They don't know. You know they they don't know the real Joseph Smith, and you 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 know break up with him, and you break up with his whole ordeal, his whole Masonic institution. You're like fuck this guy, I'm out, and then you try and tell everybody that you know and love how much of an asshole he really is, but they're still so in love with him because he's you know he's a fucking con man, and he's he's won over the hearts of all your family members, and you you just try and try to tell people just how much of a bastard Joseph Smith is, and they never believe you so uh you you grow to hate him you grow you you get this vitriolic burning hatred in your heart for this human being and then after a while you realize you know that hate is only it's only serving to be my detriment it's it's not helping anything and then you just you you go you change from hatred to a sincere desire to understand 
Why is this guy such an asshole? Why is he a con man? Why has he fucked so many people out of all of their money and everything that they've ever done? You know, why, why, why? And then you, you come to question more why and you think about it and you dig deeper and you realize, oh, he wants to be king of the fucking world. That's why he's such an asshole. He wants to overthrow the goddamn government and <laughs> be crowned a king anointed over the entire universe. Oh, yeah, and then you realize, oh, Joseph Smith, why was I in love with him in the first place? I, I can't put my mind back there. So that's just, you know, long story short, <laughs> that's, uh, that's my relationship with Joseph Smith. So I'm curious, like straight up. Um, you know, you were raised and you, you really liked this guy, you know, because uh, I guess I understand like uh, hero worship and that sort of thing. There have been people in my life who I've, I've, you know, looked on as more than human, so to speak. Me. Mm-hmm. And when that breakup happens, <laughs> it, it doesn't, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't no. like, it doesn't happen suddenly. There's like this little inkling no. that, oh, wait, something's really dreadfully wrong with this person. No. And I'm kind of wondering, like, was it an inkling thing for you or did it all come like a tidal wave? Well, so I was sold the cardboard cutout of Joseph Smith, and that's who I fell in love with. And, you know, it's always told in church that he's the most amazing prophet of our dispensation. You know, he's second only to Jesus Christ and his accomplishments Mm. and everything. Um, So you you fall in love with a false character. But then as you begin to learn more things, um, ex-Mormons have this analogy where we have a mental shelf. And when you learn about something, oh, yeah, polygamy. Oh, he, he, he fucked somebody that was 14 years old. Um, okay, I, I can, you know, he was doing that as a man. Everything else he was doing as a prophet. Okay, so I'll just put that problem up on my shelf. Oh, wow. And then you learn about um, yeah, just anything that you, you learn, uh, any of his political maneuverings. And that he uh, started the Kirtland Safety Society and printed his own rag money and, you know, stole thousands of dollars from Mormons. And uh, Mm, yeah, that, that's that's kind of doesn't sound like a prophet. It kind of sounds like an asshole. I'll just put that up on my shelf for later. And then you learn something like the Kinderhook plates or the Book of Abraham or um, the the tragic failing of Zion's camp or you learn the real story of the Carthage jail shootout. And that's what we call your shelf comes crashing down. <laughs> that's when you finally make the emotional break where you're no longer trying to apologize for this guy. You're you, you, you understand what has happened. You understand that you've been betrayed and lied to by this institution for so long and your shelf comes crashing down. So for me, it was, um, uh, a matter of I didn't like going to church. I had a love for Joseph Smith that was instilled in me, uh, indoctrinated in me as most Mormons do. But, uh, you know, after I left the church and I started learning about this, um, that 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 <laughs> that any love that I held for Joseph Smith and his legacy was completely and utterly shattered. It just it turned to just shit in my mouth. Wow. Hmm. And um, yeah, it, and it was it was pretty slow realizing this. But then once you get over that threshold of realizing what Joseph Smith is, everything after that, after you cross that threshold is fun. It's fun to learn about Joseph Smith once you realize how much of an asshole he was. Wow. Yeah. I can really resonate with that, actually, because, uh, and I'm sure James can, too, because, like, there have been characters that we've covered on the show. I say characters because we characterize them, basically. Um, mm, yeah. There have been people on the show that I've gone in, like, kind of hating, like, automatically. And then once you understand what was really going on, you can't help but understand what was really going on. And, yeah, yeah. you know, there are still people who, you know, do terrible things for terrible reasons and whatnot. 
But once you figure out that they're playing a game um, and you start to understand the game, I get not being able to stop reading. I mean, we started making the joke about how I couldn't shut the fuck up about Mao because I didn't didn't know anything about Mao. And then I went and I read it and I'm like, holy shit, this guy was like a major tool. You know, and but from then on, it's like, you know, I hear there are Maoists in California and I'm like, okay, I get it because they've been sort of. They've heard the one side that sounds nice, and the you know millions of deaths go on the shelf, so to speak. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if James has a reaction to this. Uh, yeah, it, it sounds. A, it reminded me of kind of Aaron, you and my our uh, evangelical upbringing, and this kind of vision of people just being perfect. And yeah, you can see the bad, but you just ignore it. With a like with Joseph Smith, and growing up in a very conservative evangelical church, there were so many pastors and families that I grew up being taught that these were the best of the best. These were perfect Christian people. Uh, and then when, <laughs> when my eyes were opened, I was like, oh, wow, these people, these people are really shitty. Uh, and their families are falling apart and they're doing horrible things. Um, so I, I don't know. It sounds uh, kind of similar and dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's hard to get past that mentality when you're, you know, brought up from birth to revere somebody yeah. as, mm-hmm. you know, beyond human, right? Mm-hmm. This is a superhero. I can't question anything that they do. And then when you find out that they are, you know, raping a 14-year-old, oh, you're God. like, oh, wow, um, that that can't be true or that, um, that's you know, that's anti-Christian lies or whatever the right. case is. And then you... You see evidence put in front of you, and you have you come to a crossroads, right? You can say, "Well, I I just choose to compartmentalize that, put it on my shelf, and not deal with it." <clears throat> Pardon me. Or I choose to, you know, deal with that. And when you choose to deal with it, you can deal with it in a number of ways. But I think that dealing with it probably comes with some kind of level of understanding that this person is not who I, you know, initially thought that they Mm. were. This is not who I was indoctrinated to believe they were. Mm. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of, uh, uh, did you see the movie uh, Look Who's Back? No. I did not. Okay. Do you know what it's about? Mm -mm. It's a a German film, came out a couple years ago. It's on Netflix, I believe. Um, It's about, like... Instead of dying, Hitler, like, jumped in time and <laughs> arrived in the modern world. And uh, it's it's sort of like half feature film with a story and everything. And there's some documentary elements to it. And one of the things that happens is he's driving down the street, you know, dressed as Hitler. And they're just filming people on the street corners. And a lot of them are throwing up the salute. Oh, gosh. And because, oh. I mean, it's like even there where they... They clearly work very, very hard to, you know, disavow the past, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in schools and everything. Um, even there, there's still an indoctrination level that's just kind of stuck. Um, and, you know, the conversations I've had with people, you know, in the South and even up North um, who have sympathy with, like, wor- world leaders who did terrible things, they always mm-hmm. say the same thing. They always put the bad stuff on the shelf. Well, it, you know, it probably happened that way, but. You know, it really wasn't that bad, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they argue about numbers a lot, you know. And, you know, it was just, a, you know, he made mistakes. And I'm not strictly speaking about Hitler either. But it's like he made mistakes. And, of course, things were going to get, you know, squished in the change, you know, like with the industrialization of China and Russia. It's like, yeah, well, of course, you know, millions were going to starve. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the price of the future, I guess. 
yeah. Um, so I'm sure you saw a lot of that too, because um, I know we did, at least in uh, yeah. evangelical Christianity. Well, yeah, and I guess it's a matter of the, the subjective interpretation of what you value, right? So mm-hmm. do you value Pax Romana to the point that you can excuse exterminating, you know, 10% of the entire world population <laughs> in order to establish Pax Romana, right? Yeah. Um, or Pax Germania, right? I mean, that was a thing for a very brief time, but it did cost millions of people's lives, but is the trade-off better? And I don't know, if, if you are... <clears throat> If the vision of what was accomplished uh, by an individual or what is being accomplished by an individual is completely unassailable in your mind, Mm. that holds infinite weight above anything bad that they might do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the most, you know, the most stalwart, amazing person can be the most horrific bastard um you know anti-humanist in the world Mm -hmm. but still garner a legion of people fawning over them because their good acts whether that's writing a book of mormon or the third reich are completely unassailable and you know it's if yeah it's it's a challenge, isn't it? Uh, it, it trying it totally to deal is. with the way to knock things that are, you know, untouchable this way, knock ideas that are untouchable down a peg so that they can be touched, so that blasphemy isn't a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when we can have a real conversation about the merits of a character and, and, you know, them as an individual. But it's really hard to get over that point. Once, you know, once you get there, you can, the real conversations can happen. But the real conversations often don't happen because we can never get past that threshold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. I think the, the sort of unifying element to all of these massive movements like this, whether they be political or religious, um, is it's a vision of something like a utopia. You know, like... Uh, <clears throat> Just believe everything I say, and all will be all will be well with the whole world. I think about right. we're building Zion, damn it! <laughs> yeah, we're building Zion. We're building, you know, the uh, Eternal Reich. We're building the communist utopia, the perpetual revolution. Um, building then, democracy. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like I mean, it it all kind of comes down to the same sort of wishy washy, like vague, uh, vaguely well not detailed at all but also like highly persuasive stuff Hmm. Um, because like if you sit there and listen to i mean if you had to sit through an hour of scientology um you know i I think that's one of my favorite things that i i learned about or that i've ever heard scientologists say and i think it was david miscavige who said it in an address and he was just like we're gonna save the planet and they're all Hmm. about like bringing peace to the planet and prosperity to everyone and it's like you look at them from the outside and you're like how deluded do you have to be to trust yeah. that man right over there? Yeah. You're you're applauding a portrait. You know? It's it's Well, and there's bizarre. there's so much complex psychology that goes into mm. this, right? I mean, you have the indoctrination at the foundational level to deify a human being, which is already incredibly problematic. And then you have this idea of instilling this, you know, utopian mindset into a legion of followers and then they're stuck in a sunk cost fallacy when the utopia never happens Mm -hmm. right so it's it's so wonderfully complex and unfortunately it's really hard to attribute causality and fault Mm. 
right? Yep. Because so often the people who are right, you know, who get to the deification status, they were raised in a time and place and culture where they were taught that somebody would be that person, huh. and they just do whatever they can to get to become that person, you know, and. and I'm using Joseph Smith as a, the paramount example of this. He was born into a world that was rife with prophets, rife with visionary people mm. who were leading, you know, major congregations. He saw what they did, he mimicked them, and he made his own congregation. Beyond that, he had his grandfather who prophesied that, you know, a great or a marvelous work and a wonder, I'm paraphrasing, would come out of the Smith family uh, progenitors. And Joseph Smith was them. So you have this cultural milieu where a person like Joseph Smith, a charismatic type person who can garner a following and, and bilk people out of money, gets to become that person that is deified in the public uh, psyche. And everything that he does once he crosses over and becomes that deified person everything he does after that is completely excusable mm. and it mm. reaches a critical mass where he can only gain more followers and only gain more public detractors mm. so i guess my question is this is a matter of opinion i suppose um but i'm just asking your perspective on this um do you think he was a 100 percent conscious con man or do you think he partially yeah. believed that he was uh, actually some sort of some sort of deity figure yeah I think that's a false dichotomy um, so he was 100% a con man okay um, he he was cognizant that he was a con man and he did whatever he could to survive yeah. and mm. I think that given his his mindset especially with how heavily steeped in magic and occult he was mm. and how much he understood that the world around him was moved and shaped by the power and will of God. He became an embodiment of a figure that he wanted to become. And I think he very rarely ever zoomed out from the meta and questioned whether or not he truly believes what he's doing. I think his mind was so adaptive and fluid that when somebody would come along, like, let's say, with Brigham Young in speaking tongues, Joseph Smith's belief system would immediately adapt that, oh, hey, now we speak in tongues as Mormons. Huh. Uh, and and the, you, <laughs> once you get into the Nauvoo years and he has a major influx of Masons coming in, um, they, they established the Masonic Lodge in Nauvoo in March of 1842, and then suddenly Joseph incorporates the Masonic ritual into his own belief system <laughs> and calls it the endowment ceremony. He, he had this ability to adapt and evolve and probably sincerely believed all of these adaptations and evolutions while still knowing that he was wholeheartedly a con man. But I just, <laughs> oh. I don't think that those are mutually exclusive propositions. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. He's basically ahead, the perfect embodiment of the American dream. Fuck yeah, he was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and not the it, white picket fence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it wasn't the white picket fence American dream. It was the rags to riches right. to fuck everybody <laughs> over and die in a blaze of glory American dream. That's what Absolutely. We're all about, That's really. Joseph. <laughs> fuck yeah. <laughs> I love America. No, see, because I was reading about this initially, and it's like, 
you go to the, you know, I usually like browse the Wikipedia page to get a general outline and then I go to the later sources and then, you know, that sort of thing. But like one of the first things I noticed and one of the first holes I got sucked into was the Great Awakening hole. Oh, like, shit, yeah. That was a huge fucking thing. And I knew about that, you know, being raised evangelical. We talked about it all the time. Yeah. Um, and we also used it as an opportunity to disparage Mormons, which was kind of interesting. Um, yeah. But, uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if James had a similar experience, but we definitely did not think the Mormons were legit. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing, um, and this, this cuts both ways, if you want to know how you know, Luciferian Mormons are, you ask a Baptist, right? And and that goes every single direction. It's it's one big clusterfuck of no true Scotsman fallacies oh. fired from one congregation to the next. Mm. And Mormons are, are really great at it as well. They're just much more erudite about it. Oh, well, you know, you, you have the gospel. We just have the more complete gospel. <laughs> <laughs> you have the high school degree. We got the PhD in Christianity. Yeah. <laughs> got the DLC. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. The pay well, Mormonism is just Christian <laughs> DLC. <laughs> It's uh, called Blood and Wine. I don't know. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I'm kind of curious because uh, we know we know what uh, our denominations said about about uh, Mormons and their leadership and that sort of thing. And I'm kind of curious what the official stories are about, like Joseph Smith's career as as a seer or a magician or whatever. Um, I, did they think that? he was legit or how do they how, what are the apologetics so to speak yeah this is a, this is a really new field of apologetics in mormonism oh, wow. because up until just the past um, maybe decade and a half people were still being excommunicated for writing about his magical inclinations <laughs> mm. Um, it was all anti-Mormon lies until just a few years ago when the church itself in 2015 published their picture of his magic seer stone that he used for translating the plates, what they couldn't, you know, what he called the Urim and Thummim. Um, the church itself has really tried to distance itself from his magic leanings, mm -hmm. and it started doing that during his own lifetime. Wow. Even really? it, it, Joseph knew that, well, because magic and occult and, and jugglers and, and mesmerists and, and all of these, the, the people that he ran with, the people that he was a product of, were derided in society. Mm -hmm. They were counterfeiters. They were swindlers. They were con men. They were glass lookers. They, they were seen in society as somebody who was not to be revered, but rather a vagabond, you know, yeah. a, a, a depraved knave, you know, somebody who's just wildly deluded, a fanatic. Joseph knew the public perception of what it would, you know, what it would change in his public persona if people knew about his magical inclinations and his magical heritage. And he actively distanced himself from that while still practicing a lot of those those ideas, um, always trying to get back to the ancient mysteries that practiced at Eleusis. Um, and, you know, even more ancient than that, the Egyptian religions. And he was always steeped in this stuff. He was a polymath of sorts, but he just happened to believe everything that he read, whereas you think that most polymaths just 
understand everything they read, oh, right? Yeah. Mm. So there's a difference there. But you know, there there has been an active campaign to white out his history from the initial, you know, his own recountings of his history, and since then it has taken independent researchers and, and secular researchers to publish frequently on this to get to the point where the church is being dragged into reality mm. and the history of Joseph Smith is being uh, is given a much uh, a much more holistic depth that it's never had before and that's only come about in the, I mean the first major biography of Joseph Smith that really touched on his seer stones him using a rock and a hat and his magical inclinations was Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History. And that was uh, circa 1947. Mm. So already that's a hundred and, you know, three years after Joseph Smith's death, where the public first became aware that Joseph Smith was using a seer stone in a hat. <laughs> Prior to that, it was only, only the most upper ep- echelons of Mormons who ever had even access to that information. Really? So, yeah, and, and since then, it you know, no man knows my history has been derided and destroyed by Mormon apologists. They think uh, immediately after it was published, uh, an apologist named Hugh Nibley, he was the ultimate twentieth-century Mormon apologist and scholar. Uh, historian, he wrote, "No, ma'am, that's not history." Deriding <laughs> Fawn Brody's take on this, and it was it was basically just a small pamphlet that just said, "No, this is all hogwash, hand waving, and and just not believing any of it." Um, but the thing is, Hugh Nibley knew all of that stuff. He knew all of it, and he, you know, he went on a campaign among other historians to actively hide that information or keep it from getting into the public, you know, the lexicon of who Joseph Smith is. So it's been an active campaign. Only recently has the church come somewhat honestly by it. And even still, the apologetics for it is like they have an apostle. Dieter F. Uchtdorf, who published a, a, a post on Facebook of him holding up his cell phone and saying that the seer stones basically worked the way that a cell phone did. And if we can use a seer, you know, if we can use our modern day seer stones to translate languages, who are we to say that God couldn't make Joseph's magic rock do it? Um, it's, it's an organic iPhone. So, yeah, that's what I'm picturing here. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! See, because uh, okay, James, I'm curious what you think about this because uh, how, what do you, how do you feel about uh, about re- just uh, changing history a little bit to fit your narrative? Uh, it sounds good to me as long as you're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's no, a real big asterisk right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. How. Any any criticism of your belief is just plain conspiracy theory, um, and we, we've seen that uh, in religion and politics all the time. <laughs> and it's a real easy way to write off everyone else's argument is to just call them a conspiracy theorist. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Sort of like when I tell, uh, I was talking to a coworker the other day. He said he was. We were both bored, so he was like, "Tell me a joke." <laughs> so I told him the mango story, <laughs> which. I know I told you that story, right, Bryce? I do not recall. The Mao, the Mao story about Mao, and he gets the shipment of mangoes, and he sends one to a factory, and they worship it and revere it and hold a political rally for it, and they spend so much time doing this that they don't ever eat it, and it just rots. And so <laughs> they, they boil it down and then give each worker a spoonful of the water left over, 
And then uh, there's some dentist somewhere who said he thinks that mangoes are a little bit like sweet potatoes, and he was executed for counter-revolutionary thoughts. <laughs> true story. It's a true story. Um, and the funny, I don't know. That sounds thing, conspiracy, conspiracy theorist. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's what the that's what the modern day Maoists would say. Oh, that's just propaganda. You know, you're just believing. The wrong things come over here and believe the right things. And, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, oh, God. It's... <laughs> it's... Um, blasph- the word blasphemy has uh, you know, oh, many yeah. different iterations, but the idea of what blasphemy is has killed a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and it got Indiana Jones slapped by Sean Connery, so there's that. Oh, that's true. <laughs> just, just as bad. I love that scene. Oh. Yeah, so blasphemy just might be, it can be used as another word for uh, counter-revolutionary thought or, uh, well, I mean, degenerate or something like that, as they use in the, the uh, National Socialist State in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, these are, these are words that kill ideas, you mm-hmm. know, um, yep. and, and, and delegitimize people automatically. Because I say, <laughs> I could characterize James as a conspiracy theorist because he's read conspiracy theories. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I could completely discredit him and destroy his reputation on the show as just some asshole. He would be even lower than that, right? Wait, you, you already have, though. I mean, <laughs> and you're not wrong, which is the thing. Like, I admit it, but yeah. You admit it? You admit you're a conspiracy theorist? Indeed. Oh, dear. Yeah. Okay. And the podcast is over. Yeah, the podcast is over. Good last episode, guys. Yes. Got to move, <laughs> move down to Austin, James, and get you hooked up with Alex Jones and... You have a wild career ahead of Sign you. Sign me up. Be yeah. Huge. <laughs> oh, good fun. How how easy would life be? Is you could if you could just believe everything you read. Oh, Jesus. Uh, it would be super. All you easy. could read was Kelvin and Hobbes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, I, that's an interesting question. Hmm. I'm conducting the interview here. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know, because like, uh, once I became kind of a skeptical dude, it uh, <clears throat> it started to kind of work the other way, where it was like I would hear things that were, you know, that seemed true, and I would be more skeptical of them. Hmm. Um, you know, and I've run across, uh, as I've been looking for better jobs, what I've come across is a lot of, like, fake companies. Um, they hire people, uh, like, they see your interview and they're like super impressed and then you get on the phone with them and it's clear they didn't even read your resume um you know like i was somebody told me i I did a great job uh learning getting my master's in teaching i'm like where the hell did you get that (laughs) like (laughs) but uh you know it's like fake corporations and that sort of thing they operate kind of the same way they it's like you go on their you go on their websites and they all look the same it's hilarious they have very young people all dressed up and they have like twenty five photos on their their Instagram or their Facebook or their Twitter or not Twitter but uh, LinkedIn still with or the Shutterstock watermark on them. Yeah, well, basically <laughs> because all they do is they they take team photos and they're all smiling real big and the CEO's this young dude down in front like pointing to himself and there's always pictures with fancy cocktails and shit like that and it's like once you see that. Um, and then they make lots of promises. But anyway, it's it's really bizarre. I had a weird, weird experience in Chicago where I got this interview for a marketing position. And I went in and uh, it's like I walked in. And I was like, this is a fake office. Because <laughs> <laughs> like the, the desks weren't even like on the floor. They were like just a little bit off the floor. Like they were on wheels. And then like 
they had this stack of like the corporate magazine and the CEOs on the cover of all of them and there's like typos and shit all over and you open them up and it's just inspirational quotes and photos of the CEO and like we do good work for our clients and if you ask them what work do you do for what clients they're like oh lots of them and lots of work <laughs> what the hell is this it's nice to get a peek into how the uh, the unemployment numbers are falsely being deflated. Mm. This is this is really it's good to know. It's yeah. good to know. Well, it's like they they claim, oh, we hire people every day and we're expanding very rapidly, and it's like great. So you go in and you learn that the turnover rate is like two weeks. You're like, <laughs> what the fuck? Like you last two weeks and then you figure it out, and the glass door reviews are all either five stars or one star. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh joy, joy, joy. Yeah, so but no 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 needless to say though I think the central point still stands is like you got to be vigilantly skeptical of mm. everything you read. Yeah. Right? Yes. <laughs> and yeah. and sometimes the, the things that seem more outlandish may be the true things the seem things that seem more mundane may be the most outlandishly mm. inaccurate things like it, it just requires mm. having like a baseline of skepticism. Mm. I am disavowing you as a conspiracy theorist Bryce. <laughs> Your podcast is I history. That. We're going to brigade you on Twitter. That, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that is an interesting point, isn't it? Because it really depends on how you frame the history. Because if you look at Joseph Smith as, oh, he was a divine figure with, ju- as, and he was also just a man, you know. Um, well, <laughs> to to honest, honestly, the. I get endlessly frustrated with Christian ministries and their research into Mormonism. Hmm. Why? Because they can do good research. Don't get me wrong. A, a number of them have provided a fair amount of, you know, really solid documentation and uh, the the, sure. the rationale that is used to postulate their narrative. You know, it, it can be faulty at times, but then you always get to their concluding paragraphs and they say, and obviously because of all these reasons, Joseph Smith was not a true prophet led by God <laughs> because we know that our last true prophet and, you know, was the Savior himself coming down in the form of Jesus and you're like well okay you just fucked all of your credibility uh, straight to hell yeah. great thank you and <laughs> it happens out. so much because that's who so who does a lot of the research into Mormonism is Christians who are trying to convert Mormons from hmm. that satanic cult that they're in and you know it's just it, it it makes more work for you know r- skeptical researchers who are trying to cut through the bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just it makes my job yeah. a lot it take a lot longer, not harder. It just makes it take longer. It, yeah. You know, you just always have to be on guard with you know a, a gauntlet of skepticism to run all the information through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of interesting. That that really reminded me of my my master's degree days when oh I was God. you know reading academic papers and they were writing about nothing. And that's not, I mean, I was reading all this shit and trying to make sense of it. Uh, and you, they say nothing for like 10 pages. And then <laughs> at the end, they throw yeah. in this opinion. And it's like, this obviously means that, you know, film is not a film unless it's shot on film. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, how did you get there? <laughs> like, you said nothing at all for like four hours. And your conclusion is that film is not film if it's shot on video. Like, what the fuck? But I don't know. I don't know. It, I get, I kind of get that because academic stuff like that, especially and especially regarding history, because I, t- you know, I studied film history too. Um, it all depends entirely on your your lens, 
uh, if yeah. you're going to get red. Mm -hmm. And if your lens is incorrect, then you're not going to get red and you're going to get discredited as, an, as a historian, you know, that sort of thing. And anyway, that's a whole other rabbit trail that we're yeah. not going to get into. But, uh, but I think it is important. Let's let's wrap it into Joseph Smith because there are there's the community of historical consensus about Joseph Smith, mm -hmm. and built into that community are the various biographers and historiographers who are the trusted people to go to, who have been writing on Joseph Smith or Mormon history for decades, who have published these seminal works that have, you know, spawned entire fields, sub subfields of Mormon history within the overarching, you know, narrative of Mormon history. And you have to learn, you have to go in and mingle with the historians at conferences and online and in and wherever you can to know what the historical consensus is. Mm. Because if you're just reading every history book about Joseph Smith that you can without any context of how that work is treated within the community, you learn a lot of superfluous information that arguably the community doesn't care about or doesn't pay any mind to. Mm. Mm. So, for example, um, here's here's a great example. Mark Staker wrote a, a book about Kirtland Mormonism. And the book, uh, otherwise, Mark Staker is fairly well regarded as a believing Mormon historian. Mm -hmm. But this book jumped to a number of conclusions. It postulated a lot of information based on just a couple of little um, little snapshots of, of newspaper articles, local newspaper articles, which um, historically are more reliable than national news articles, but still have their faults and relied too heavily on them for a certain aspect of this, this Kirtland history. Mm. And unless you know who Mark Staker is, unless you know what that book is, unless you know the story that he's talking about and you know the history behind that story, if you don't know those four things, you'll regard what he reported as truth. Mm -hmm. But you have to know all four of those things to realize that he jumped to conclusions and that it's not good history. Oh. So the the study of history is a lot more complicated and it's not a science. I mean, it, it does take consensus. It does take ingratiating yourself into the historical community of whatever topic it is to really know what history is trustable. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good yeah. point. Um, that, Cause on the show, you know, we come across patterns and that sort of thing oh, and yeah. you know, patterns in particularly tyrants. And we talk a lot about, uh, you know, quacks and cultists and um, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> but you start detecting these, these systems that they're using to persuade people basically uh, and it's really easy to go, oh, they're all actually the same. And it's so much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. it really yeah, is. right? Yeah. But I don't know if James had anything to say on that. Yeah, or uh, or something else uh, along those patterns is uh, a cultist or whatever will be, you'll agree with him on 95% of the issues, and he'll use that momentum of the 95% to uh, just brush past the other 5%, which is really the important things, but... You'll get swept up with the things you agree with them on that you, uh, you'll you forget about the things you don't agree with them on, and then, oh, you're part of the cult. Yeah. Well, that reminds yeah. me, you actually made a point about that on the Talat Pasha episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, or we actually came to that together, I, I think. it's uh, He was like, the young Turks and whatnot were like pushing for equal rights and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And everyone was like, hell yeah, let's do it. And they also like slipped in this extra stuff about the Armenians. Yeah. 
And you're like, wait, what the fuck? We were talking about equality like a couple minutes ago, and now we're talking about the Armenians? What the hell? Yeah, it's the fine print. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that was that was the same thing that we noticed when we did Joseph Goebbels, was like, they were like, oh yeah, we're gonna equal rights and industrialization, and also the Jews. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> How did you get there? Yeah. Uh, Explain that. Last that last 5%. Yeah. That last 5%, that's the active ingredient yes. in the whole movement. <laughs> we yeah. got to watch out for that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. It's the uh, it's the the little drop of poison in your delicious, delicious wine. but um, Or the hallucinogens, as the case Or the be. hallucinogens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I got a question for you, Bryce. And this is a very serious question. Where are the golden plates? Oh, ooh, I love this question, actually. Uh, I love it, I love it. So the golden plates, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, the Book of Mormon was supposedly translated from these golden plates that were written in Reformed Egyptian from ancient <laughs> Hebrews who sailed across the ocean, Pacific, not Atlantic, the Pacific Ocean in <laughs> really? 600 BCE and, um, and also in 24. Uh, 2600 BCE in wooden submarines, which is a whole other aspect oh, of this. Oh, and th- those, those plates are an abridged record of all of the plates that were ever written on by multiple historians throughout the entire tenure of the Book of Mormon, which is from 2600 BCE to 421 AD. Hmm. Uh, sorry, CE. So the golden plates themselves are an abridged record of all of those thousands and thousands of plates that have ever been written on. We've <laughs> really never found does any. Read of these. like an abridgment too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then they did this, and nothing happened. And then they did this, and no- uh, man, <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, yeah. Mark Twain colloquially called it the uh, chloroform in print. And, uh, <laughs> Well said, Mr. Well, Samuel Clemens. I'll, I'll never forget the contrast in the uh, in the uh, My Book of Mormon show when David Michael reached the submarine part, um, <laughs> and then he saw like Jesus or God naked or something like that, and uh, it, yeah. it was like up to that point he was just reading it and he was like, I don't know, you know, and he's just kind of going along and it's like, oh God, gotta get through this, you know. He started drinking, <laughs> and then uh, like he got there and it was like the whole tone shifted. <laughs> he was like, what the hell is this? You know, I loved it. I'll never forget it. I was cleaning out horse stalls when I was listening to it. I was like, horse shit, horse shit. Horse shit out of the stalls, shit into my ears. Here we go. It's the circle of life. It's a tale as old as time. It's the Doppler effect. I don't know. So, the yeah, the gold plates... Um, According to Joseph Smith, they were taken back up to heaven by the angel who delivered them to him, Hmm. which doesn't make sense because he found them in the fucking ground in a box, but whatever. (laughs) Um, That was his claim. All right. Beyond that, we have um, a number of secondhand accounts, and these, these are tough because most of them come from Brigham Young, who in, you know... Brigham Young in Utah, he was definitely had a vested interest in making sure that the Mormons believed that Joseph Smith was a god on earth. Uh, Brigham Young reported in multiple instances that people, including Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith, told um, other people that there was a hill in Camorra that Joseph Smith got the plates from where there are mountains of plates, of gold plates, of silver, brass, all other kinds of metals that mm. didn't exist on the American continent at the time <laughs> with writing on them. 
and that it would take multiple wagon loads of, of mules to get all of these plates out to ship them out. Also included is the Great Sword of Laban, which is, you know, a legendary within the Book of Mormon. Uh, the, the breastplate and the, the seer stones are in there. Um, but it's only the secondhand accounts that um, primarily come from Brigham Young himself and from other people who heard Brigham Young talking about this stuff. And he was telling these at a time when he was running Mormonism in Utah, um, you know, 20, 30, 40 years after the fact, after all of these things supposedly happened. So they're not reliable, but it is really fun. It's it's Mormon folklore, mm-hmm. and it has spawned people digging all over Utah claiming to find, you know, Nephite gold mines and silver mines and stuff. Uh, mm. It's... It's pretty interesting. The entire world of Mormon mining speculation in Utah is it's a whole other rabbit hole, but that's that that spawns some really fun reading as well. Wow. That would <laughs> I would get sucked into that, I'll tell you what, cuz I got <laughs> I got sucked into something about this guy who said he discovered the Ark of the Covenant and you know the regular ark and all that stuff and he had pictures and video and Oh, they were all lost because of some grand conspiracy or something. And I loved reading <laughs> about it because I was like, a part of me was like, what if, what if he really did? You know, like, what if this is actually a picture of the Ark of the Covenant? Like, holy shit. I mean, I don't believe it, but it's still fun. You know? Right, right, it's, right. It's still fun. It's fun to, to point at it and say that exists, but it's, it's not really fun when you're like, oh shit. Yeah. That people have lost a lot of money believing mm. in that. Fuck. <laughs> Yeah, oh, people have, have died <laughs> looking for those things. Oh wow. God! <laughs> oh my God! Uh, well, James, you're the you're the conspiracy theorist. Well, you're both conspiracy theorists. We're all conspiracy theorists. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> J- what rabbit holes have you gotten sucked into, James? Like, ha- have you ever gotten sucked into the the hunting down the Ark of the Covenant rabbit hole? You know, I'd love to answer, but I'm actually uh, I might have to go. I'm looking for my metal detector and also my roadmap <laughs> to Utah. Uh, so <laughs> it's been fun, <laughs> but I'm gonna go find me some Mormon gold. <laughs> I'll meet you there. <laughs> Absolutely. Go down to Manti. People will sell you ownership in that revered mine. Oh, they won't tell you where the mine is, <laughs> but they'll sell you ownership in it. Oh. So wait, okay, I gotta make sure I got this straight. So Brigham Young was saying that there was a treasure trove under this hill. I don't know. Yeah. So and that's in New York where Joseph found the original plates. Mm -hmm. But it spawned a lot of folklore in Utah of people searching for silver and gold mines out there. Makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. Because if the if the American continent prior to colonialization was peopled by, you know, historians who are writing down records on metal plates, those metal plates should be everywhere. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Right, Mormons? <laughs> but it's really fun. It's really fun to think about, maybe what if What if there are tablets out there? Oh, that would be so weird, you know? God, yeah, that'd um, be awesome. And it would be yeah. kind of cool. And I also mean, if chariots we, if, and metal coins and yeah. uh, armor and swords. And yeah, all of that would be really cool to find in America. Those are just called yeah. Renaissance fairs, though. I mean, we, we have, they're <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> Checkmate, atheists. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, a I bunch mean, of white I, people dressed up as Lamanites with <laughs> metal swords. Yeah, where do I uh, sign? Renaissance fairs are fun. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what would happen though. Like, would the whole world just explode and a massive black hole just pop up if we found something that proved they were right all along? I mean, I mean, 
the cultural impact that finding one tablet would have. We have, but the government just hides them. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's a weather balloon. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. And do, in all of your researching, Joseph Smith, did you come across the Kinderhook plates by chance? I haven't gotten that far. Briefly, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of picking through this with a fine-tooth comb best I can because he's a really significant guy. Yeah, the Kinderhook plates are really fun. Uh, basically, in the uh, mid-1840s, I believe it was 43, uh, a couple of guys decided that they're going to try and play a little trick on old Joe. Oh, no. So they <laughs> they made some plates, some metal, six metal plates, and they were found in Kinderhook, Illinois. And they engraved on them some sigils, some magical-looking symbols and stuff. And then they etched them with chemicals and buried them in the ground. And then one of the people happened to find them and said, Joe, 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 come here. Look at this. And they unearthed them. And Joseph said that these contain a record of the person with which they were buried. And he's begun translating them. Unfortunately, he died before he completed and published that translation. But um, it was it was uh, later examined by like BYU archaeologists or forensic anthropologists who uh, studied the etching. And they're like, yeah, this is from the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a yeah. quote. Here's a quote from these plates, or from Joseph Smith about these plates. I have translated a portion of the plates and find they contain the history of the person with whom they were found. He was a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh, king so of So he Egypt. was black. That's what it means. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that's that's received, what that means. That's literally what that means? Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> and they can't Wait. go to heaven. Oh. Oh, my God. Oh. Well, I oh, just got depressed. That got real dark oh. real fast. I was making fun of just the word loins. 1978, know. they changed it, though. So oh, good. Now, now black people can go to heaven. Oh, phew. Okay. Right. <laughs> I still haven't seen the Book of Mormon, uh, the play, but I know that line from the song, God Changed His Mind About Black People, and I was like, yep. hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Which is, oh, on my podcast, it took me like four and a half hours to go through the history of that because it's so complicated and so, wow. yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I, anyway. that's, a, that's a question that I, I, I haven't even, even reached yet in my research. I mean, uh, but I did watch this when I was hanging out with my friends in college, we would watch this animation about what the Mormons actually believed, and it's hilarious. I, I'm sure you've oh, seen it. Oh, these old cartoons? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Elohim, like, comes to the Virgin Mary's door, yeah. and she, like, opens it up and looks vaguely frightened, and he just blinks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> oh, shit, it's so creepy. Oh, man. But uh, anyway, maybe we should get this back on track. Unless you had more you wanted to say about the golden plates. Uh, no, that's, that's pretty much it. They're, they're open and shut. And Well, I will say one thing that's really cool about the golden plates is they represent the very first time that a scientist came into contact with Joseph Smith. And it was before the Book of Mormon was even published. Hmm. So the guy, uh, you'll, you'll probably find this on the Wikipedia page. Uh, if not, you, uh, Wikipedia Charles Anthon or Martin Harris. Martin Harris was the guy who Joseph was bilking in order to fund the translation and publication of the Book of Mormon. Hmm. 
Hmm. Martin Harris was a smart businessman, fairly wealthy. He said, Joe, give me a piece of paper that shows the characters that are on the golden plate so I can take them to a learned person. And he did. And Charles Anthon uh, was this learned person. He was a professor at Columbia, a biblical studies professor. He knew Greek. He knew Hebrew. You know, yeah. he knew Chaldean. Um, he knew languages, ancient languages. And this is at a time that Egyptomania was, you know, in full swing <laughs> in the 1820s in America because, you know, Champollion was really close to publishing his work on the you know, the Egyptian decipherment, Rosetta Stone had been, yep. you know, unearthed in 1799. And that was, you know, really taking fire in, in America. So uh, Charles or Martin Harris takes this this manuscript to Charles Anthon. And Anthon, when when Harris first walks in, Anthon thinks that somebody's playing a joke on him. He's like, yeah, okay, this is a hoax upon the learned. Ha ha, really funny. <laughs> and then as he learned more and more of Martin Harris's story, uh, there's this amazing quote from a letter that he wrote in 1834 about it. And I'm going to butcher the quote, but essentially he said that his mind shifted to realizing it was not a, a, a hoax upon a learned, but it was uh, that that Harris was becoming the the target of ignorant rogues, or no, uh, of depraved rogues or something to that effect. Oh, wow. So he realized at that time, he's like, oh, shit, no, this guy is sincere. He really believes what he's telling me. Whoever is this person who has these supposed golden plates is trying to fuck with him, mm. trying to steal his money. And he warned him, but Martin Harris then still, dum 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 dum, <laughs> went and funded the Book of Mormon. So, yeah. But that, you know, the, with the gold plates specifically, no learned person ever saw them. No, no archaeologist was able to uh, document them or see them, handle them, anything. It was just Joseph Smith's friends and family members, and then one guy, Martin Harris, who funded the Book of Mormon. He was the target. He was the mark the whole time. That's amazing how little it took. Yeah. Really. Yep. At yep. the beginning. And you, you can look, uh, so the Anthon transcript doesn't actually exist. If you look at the characters manuscript, which was written down about the same time, it has what what historians assume is the same uh, symbols that are on it as were on the Anthon transcript. You can see it. Um it's it's pretty much exactly as uh, Charles Anthon described it, huh. and it's just the alphabet. It's just like an A with an extra line and a squiggly. There's a B <laughs> with like a dot in the center. There's like just a backward C. Like it's just English, uh, and he just changed it around a little bit to make it look like it was esoteric. But no, oh, no, wow. this learned guy Charles Anthon was like, no, he's a fucking idiot. He's trying to steal your money. <laughs> and it sounds like the guy didn't listen. No, no, no. <laughs> and died penniless. Oh, oh even worse. Uh, oh my God. Well, James, did you have any questions for Bryce? <clears throat> yeah, I did. So, um, like I usually do on Saturday nights, I was on ldsliving.com, and oh. uh, <laughs> wild night. I uh, I came across this. Uh, this article that says something about an assassin trying to kill Joseph Smith when he was only 14 years old and then accidentally shooting a cow. <laughs> what? Is that yeah. a real thing? Well, you know, 14 year olds just fucking assholes. You just want to shoot 14 fucking years. They're, they're just a horrible. Okay, what would cause somebody to want to kill a person that's 14 years old? Uh, knowing that they're the prophet of truth and needing to stop that <laughs> insanity. Oh, well, that's it. Definitely. <laughs> this well, goes to Joseph's magical inclination. Go ahead, Aaron. Oh, I was gonna, <laughs> no, I'm, I was just going to make a dumb joke about uh, buying Call of Duty or something like that, but I'm going <laughs> to... 
<laughs> that son of a bitch pre-ordered. <laughs> no, boycott EA. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So one way that Joseph made his money was through his magic seer stone, which continued to be quite the investment. You know, he found out while digging a hole, and he created an entire religion from it. Mm. Um, So this seer stone, one of his many tricks that he would do is he would go to local farmers and uh, steal some of their implements, uh, steal and hide one of their, you know, horses or a cow, um, ah. you know, just whatever. And then he would approach them and say, uh, or he would wait, you know, wait until they start complaining and, and talking to the other neighbors. <laughs> oh, well, I just, I lost this thing. And then Joseph would just happen to show up and say, you know, for a small fee, I can find that for you. Oh, wow. You know, I'll use my magic seer stone. It allows me to see things that cannot be seen through the gift and power of God. Um, if you just pay me a little bit of scrap, that'll lube up my brain and, you know, <laughs> allow the spiritual light to come through. And suddenly, magically, Joseph would find exactly what the the person was missing wow. immediately. It's, it's the most uncanny thing in the world, isn't it? It's a miracle. Yeah. It's just a miracle. It is. <laughs> yeah. You, you pull that con... Two, three, four times. You know, people. You're gonna, you're gonna get money. You pull that con thirty, forty, fifty times. People are gonna start to wise up, and people are gonna realize that you're fucking with them, and they're gonna try and shoot you. So yes, at fourteen years old, somebody tried to shoot Joseph Smith. They never found out who it was. the The account comes from his own mother in uh, biographical sketches, which was dictated, you know, right after. Uh, right before she died in 1850, no, 45, hmm. I think, 45 to 46. Um, that's when the, that's where that account comes from. And the the assassin was never found. And apparently they found the bullets lodged into a cow that was uh, just on the other side of where Joseph was. And they found the person's tracks, you know, crouched in a bush. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the poor so, cow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, shot the cow mm. and poor Joseph because he's you know he had his vision that's and true. you know people were persecuting him already yeah, he wasn't yeah. even the prophet yet absolutely no. that is that's... but I mean you just have to understand what would cause somebody to want to kill a 14 year old well because that 14 year old was a fucking asshole <laughs> right right <laughs> it's a, it was a different time I mean yeah. like, if someone's you, stealing your cow <laughs> you're gonna fucking kill them yes, yes exactly yeah. the American dream <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> Vigilante justice. It's not the white pick offense anymore. Right, right. Uh, I, I hear you advocating for vigilante justice, uh, Bryce, so I'm going to disavow you as a supporter of Batman. <laughs> Good call. Good call. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> vigilante Twitter justice. Let's keep it civil, people. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Oh, God. Oh, God. That's, 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 uh, that's quite a topic, that one, but I don't want to go there. <laughs> So I was wondering, uh, James, did you have anything else you were interested in asking? Uh, sure. This gets, uh, I don't know if this involves Joseph Smith, but when did, uh, when did the Mormons really show up on the federal government's radar? When was that, when did that show up, I guess? <laughs> was it while Joseph was alive still? I think it was, right? Yo, definitely. Um, yeah. we, it's pretty hard to, uh, be running for president in a serious campaign without showing up on the, the federal government's radar. Mm, okay. Um, right, right. <laughs> so this is this is a pretty nuanced question. Sure. Because the federal government didn't have an interstate police force. Mm. 
So the Fed, and I mean, in comparison, the federal government today is vastly has vast amount more power than the government, the federal government of the 1800s. the The federal government was hardly anything from the late end of the 1700s into the early 1800s. It took the Civil War mm-hmm. for the federal government to exercise and grab a lot of control. Mm. So. What would be more important? I think a more pertinent question would be, when did Joseph Smith show up on government radar? Mm -hmm. And that really comes... uh, There were a couple of blips that he had. Um, hmm. Uh, uh, I'm just scanning through his entire timeline in my head. So most prominently would be with Zion's camp. So what happened with Zion's camp is Joseph declared that Independence, Missouri would be Zion, the New Jerusalem. That's where the Mormons are going to build this. um, This plays into his theocratic tendencies because the Book of Mormon was written as a book to Christianize the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. And the Native Americans were this massive swing vote, basically, or swing block, I should say. If any, you know, American was able to get the Native Americans to ally into a single cohesive body, they would control enough power to overthrow the government, right? So if anyone could control the natives, Joseph Smith wanted to be that guy. So the Book of Mormon itself was written to Christianize the natives. So they established their very first uh, missionary troop headed out to the Native Americans to quote-unquote, proselytized to the Lamanites on the borders of Jackson County. And that's where they they proselyted it. They built an entire um, subculture within Missouri. Hmm. And Joseph gave a revelation commanding a bunch of Mormons to just head from New York straight to Missouri, and that's where they would settle. So by 1833, the Missouri settlement of Mormons was larger than the headquarters in Kirtland, Ohio, because Kirtland had expanded just about to its capacity, whereas land in Missouri was really cheap, thanks to the Indian Removal Act, right? Mm, Yeah, right. So um, eventually the Missourians and the Mormons came to a, a number of conflicts that caused the Mormons to be removed from Jackson County. And in response to this, and their printing press being burned down, their homes being raided and burned, uh, their businesses being destroyed, all their crops being burned, uh, the Mormons being kicked out of Jackson County, Joseph Smith organized a fighting militia force of 200 men and marched them the 800 miles from Ohio to Missouri. Now, this had a few interesting effects because Zion's camp, as it came to be known, was initially Joseph called on 1,000 fighting men, but when you are... uh, when service in a military isn't compulsory, oftentimes those plans tend to fall flat. So it right, ended up sure. being 200 men, uh, 205 to be exact, mm-hmm. and a number of women and, and children as well to h- help with cooking and cleaning and supplying and everything. Um, so they made this 800-mile trek, and it took a couple months to get out there. And this had an interesting effect because suddenly uh, people were riding up to this troop of Mormons and saying, who are you? What are you doing? And they'd say, we are from the east. We're headed to the west. Um, Who is your leader? Well, we don't really have a leader. Sometimes it's one. Sometimes it's another just so we don't have the burden on one person. They they gave all these wishy-washy answers to questions of, you know, reporters and militiamen who were coming up and asking who they were. And basically... They the people coming up and learning what Zion's camp were, they realized this is a Mormon militia headed to Missouri to attack Jackson County so that they can reinstate the Mormons back into their homes in Jackson County and provide support for them. 
And of course, as the rumors spread, um, this army slowly grew from 200 people to more than a thousand people. Hmm. Jesus. Okay. Which, which did have a lot, it granted a lot of leverage to the Mormons living in Missouri who had been kicked out because suddenly rumors are flying that you have a thousand Mormons coming to help you out and, uh, you know, be the aggressors in this or the defenders in this, this conflict. But it, um, it all kind of fizzled out, but needless to say, that kicked off the Missouri-Mormon conflict that all culminated in 1838 with the Missouri-Mormon War, um, where, you know, uh, the Mormons um, attacked aggressively on the Battle of Crooked River. They uh, they took a number of prisoners. They let a prisoner go um, in down a path that they could see him, and they had shooters stationed, and they shot the prisoner, oh, uh, but he, he was able to survive. Um, the Gallatin Day election, where there was a massive brawl between 30 Mormons and, you know, like 100 Missourians, and then the Hans Mill Massacre, where um, uh, 18 Mormons were shot in cold blood oh. in a mill and then buried in a well. And then all of it uh, ended with uh, somewhere between 2,500 to 3,500 Missouri militiamen surrounding the two Mormon strongholds in Missouri and arresting Joseph Smith and, you know, a number of other prominent Mormon figures. And they held a court-martial immediately that night and tried to... um, uh, because Joseph had been acting in a military capacity, but he wasn't commissioned as a military officer by the state. So the uh, the General Lucas tried to hold a court-martial there in the camp and commanded one of the other generals that you will take these men and shoot them in the square of Far West and execute them at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. General Donovan, who was given that order, was a friend to the Mormons. He said, I will not follow this order, and if you execute these men, I will hold you accountable before an earthly tribunal. It was a huge goddamn mess, but needless to say, the Mormons, um, they were removed thanks to Lilburn Boggs' extermination order of 1838. They found refuge in Illinois, and Joseph Smith went and met with Martin Van Buren and asked to have a redress for the Mormons, which uh, he asked for $1.3 million in (laughs) payments for everything that the Mormons had lost. And when I say $1.3 million, that's not today's money. Oh, no. That's 1840s money. Um. The the president basically told Joseph, hey, I can't do anything for you or else I'll come into contact with the whole state of Missouri. And some people would postulate at that point is when Joseph said, I'm going to run for president on the next election cycle. <laughs> and he did. So he was he kind of had this steady trajectory of becoming more and more on the government's radar. Uh, local governments, the Missourians hated the Mormons from 1830 on. Yeah. Um, Ohio, he, he didn't really spend a whole lot of time dealing with politics in Ohio. He wasn't very smart with that. Illinois, he was constantly currying favor and with, uh, politicians in Illinois. He didn't want a repeat of Missouri. So he, uh, he was constantly promising the Mormon block vote for a d- number of different politicians. Mm. He would curry favor with one wig and say, oh, oh, I'll just make sure that the Mormons vote for you. And then he would stab them in the back and vote for the Democrat the next election instead. Wow. And it was, yeah, he was, he was, he was a real bastard in Nauvoo years, particularly. Um, and the, the politicians, of course, because Nauvoo in 1844 was somewhere around 15,000 people. Mm. Chicago was 5,000 people. Oh, my God. (laughs) So politicians really, really liked Nauvoo. Mm -hmm. They really liked Joseph (laughs) Smith. No shit. (laughs) 
So, oh. yeah, I mean, so he was steadily on some government officials radar from, you know, pretty early on. Um, the earliest, the very earliest was when the Mormon missionaries were kicked out of the the Native American territories in Missouri by General William Clark of the Lewis and Clark Exploratory Troop. <laughs> Because Christian ministers needed a permit to proselytize to the the Native Americans, and the Mormons didn't get a permit. They just went out there and mm. just joined in their prayer circles and the peyote rituals. And, and, that was, and the, the government was like, no, you, you fuck off, man. Get out of here. You're not welcome. You're a loose cannon, Joseph Smith. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, like I said, a very nuanced question requires a very complicated answer. So, mm. yeah. Wow. I like it. Yeah. Sounded good to me. It was. It was. Uh, it's. It's so interesting uh, how detailed your knowledge is on this. I'm like, I'm blown away because you know, I think you said it last time we talked. You were like hanging on by your fingernails when we were blowing through like Mao or something like that. Oh, Brigham Young, totally. Oh, Brigham Young. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm got Mao on the brain. I can't get him off. Uh, <laughs> just there. Um, but <laughs> yeah, Brigham Young. It's like we just there was so much we couldn't cover. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But. It, we, you know, the idea is to give people a, a general sort of sense about what this person was all about, what their life, you know, kind of did to the world or, you know, inflicted upon the world, as you might say, uh, mm. depending on the person. Uh, so that kind of brings me to our last question. Uh, we're going to miss some things about Joseph Smith in our research. That's just for <laughs> sure. And we're going to have to leave some things out. Um just, you know, because that's just the way it is, man. You know, it's a podcast. It's not a history book. So I guess my my question for you is there's something, there's probably a couple of things that most people miss about Joseph Smith, and we don't want to miss them. So is there, like, some particular story that's not well known or something about him that most people don't know that you know uh, that you would like us to hit? I think... Uh I know Probably. it's a complicated question. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I would say that the most illustrative single point on Joseph Smith's entire trajectory that shows who he was, what his intentions were, is when he created the Council of Fifty. Hmm. The Council of Fifty was his most highest, ultimate, ultimate awesomeness group of advisors. And they were created for the sole purpose of being the government authority when they were able to successfully overturn the American government. And they would become the, the body underneath Joseph Smith to run the entire country. Great. Um, Shit. I probably would have like skimmed right over that. Okay, he created Council 50 and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, and and this, is, this is often gets lost in Joseph Smith's intentions is he was a tyrant mm. he truly wanted to overthrow the american government and when i say overthrow he wanted to band the native americans together he petitioned the united states government for 100,000 soldiers to go liberate the oregon and mexico territories Ooh. he had an idea that he was going to be the ultimate king of the world and beyond that if joseph jackson's account after joseph's death is to be believed he 
had an idea. One of his Mormons dreamt up an idea of a submarine, had plans, blueprints for a submarine, and he wanted to take those plans to the Russian government and use them to ally with the Russian government to overthrow the United States. If he couldn't band together with the Lamanites, he was going to use the Russian military. If he couldn't do that, he was going to overthrow them by his own Mormon military. He always had it in his mind that he would be king of the fucking world. And his Council of Fifty is when that dream became realized and he started making real movements to create the leadership body that would be left over after, that would rise from the ashes of the world after he had burned the whole thing to the crisp. Oh my god. (laughs) The Council of Fifty existed, I think it existed for three months before the Nauvoo Expositor was published and Joseph Smith was assassinated in Carthage as a candidate for the presidency. Um, so it was a very short-lived body in Joseph's live in Joseph Smith's timeline. But it's wow. it's very important to understand, especially if you're going to try and understand Utah Mormon history and Brigham Young. Those are the blueprints that Joseph Smith laid. He was a theocrat. He had it in his mind he would be God over the world, and Brigham Young took those and ran with them and created his own theocracy in Utah. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I, I didn't even that. Wow. I didn't even know that. I didn't know he had plans for global domination at least, but yeah, yeah. he was anointed by that council of 50 anointed King over Israel, King of the world. And as a restorationist sect, you believe that Zion, the new Jerusalem will be built on the American continent or on the world and that Joseph was going to be king over that hmm. with just Jesus Christ at his head. Hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this reminds me of Bioshock Infinite. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's in the clouds, man. I don't, yeah, build it in the clouds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the only place it could exist, you know? Like, that's the part of the game. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so, uh, holy shit, I will definitely make sure to get, get into that a little bit because... That is crazy. So, I mean, I always thought of it as just like, oh, we have some some ideas about a little state out in out in Utah, or it's going to be this like little happy utopia or whatever. But I didn't know about the whole uh, take over the government with the help of the Russians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. There's a lot of pieces of Joseph Smith that a lot of people don't realize, and how we know about the Council of Fifty is. Or how we know what we know, as and when I say we, I'm saying the royal historians, Mormon historians. Mm-hmm. The way we know about the Council of Fifty and know the detail of it is it was known that the Council of Fifty was organized. The minutes were not made available. Hmm. The initially, initially, the minutes were taken by Joseph Scribe William Clayton. And he, um, when they were um, forcefully removed from Nauvoo, if I remember this correctly, he buried his minutes in the in the ground and he, to preserve them, to keep them from falling into the hands of people who were persecuting the Mormons. And a number of years later, he came and unearthed those those minute notes, and they were while they were fairly well deteriorated, but. Because it was William Clayton, the guy who initially wrote them, who initially buried them, and who ended up unearthing them, he was able to reconstruct the Council of Fifty minutes in his own handwriting just a few years after the the Council of Fifty under Joseph Smith was organized. His minute book, those that recreated minute book, was in the church's own historical archives in their in the the president's vault. It was known as, or it is known as, sorry, and. 
It was hidden away, squirreled away. Historians had absolutely no access to it. And just, I want to say, three years ago now, the church published their Council of 50-Minute Notes with editorialization, of course, but incomplete, they published the Council of 50 Minutes. I haven't read them yet because my personal studies haven't gotten to 1844 yet. When that time comes, I will be reading through the Council of 50 Minutes, and um, I hope to share with all of my listeners on Naked Mormonism exactly the length and extent of how much Joseph was truly building a theocracy. But reading through what I have of the Council of 50 Minutes, it's it's terrifying. It's goddamn horrifying what Joseph Smith was trying to do. And there's I don't have any other way of saying it. Wow. You know, because one of the things we I've, I've tried to do um, is read the actual source material of what like what they were really talking about. Because um, it gives you a better understanding of their perspective. Not so yeah, much yeah. like what they did. Um, but what they were thinking and how they were thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have found josephsmithpapers.org, and I am pulling it up now. It's taking a while to load suspiciously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They're listening. <laughs> They're always listening. They know. <laughs> you, know <laughs> you know, they might. You don't know. <laughs> I mean, all the, all the leadership in the country might be Mormons, just secret Mormons. Reptile Mormons, <laughs> actually. Reptilian Mormons. <laughs> Basically the same thing. Yep. Raelians. Yeah. Believe in Raelians. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bryce, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, we're, Likewise. We're, we'll close out because we, uh, you know, we're we're over an hour now. Um, is there, <laughs> I totally monopolized this, but uh, that's no, what we didn't. wanted. We did a good, well, it's uh, we are makes your job easier, you. right? <laughs> yeah, we are interviewing you. I wish we could have. Uh, I wish we could have done it for the Brigham Young episode too. And I think if we cover, well, definitely if we cover any more Mormons. In the future, we will we'll try to do this again if you're open to it. For sure, yeah, uh, yeah. we can do a, uh, a Mountain Meadows Massacre episode because that's a really fun Brigham Young episode. Oh God! Yeah, wow. yay, enjoy! <laughs> <laughs> yay, Mountain Meadows Massacre. That's a quote from Bryce uh, Nagel of Naked Mormonism. Uh, not even take it out of context. It's just. It's just a real thing now. That's, just a, that's part of my public persona. Yep. I mean, I, I remember when I first hit that in the uh, under the banner of heaven, and I was like, yeah. "Oh God, how did I not know this?" And I don't know. But anyway, yeah. yeah. Read Blood of the Prophets, man. Uh, holy Blood fuck! Of the yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's been fun, gentlemen. Thank you very yeah. much for inviting me. I had a good time. Great. Absolutely. And uh, I guess we'll let James close out the show. All right. <laughs> Pressure's on, James. All right, well, no, that's fine. Uh, well, I, I need to ask you and our listeners to uh, bow our heads. <laughs> and yes. All right. uh, I'm going to say a short prayer. Um, I'm already hoodwinked. Okay. Uh, dear Mormon uh, aliens and tablets, <laughs> I pray to thee, please protect us. Please protect Mao's mangoes. And help us create that worldwide government that Joseph Smith envisioned so long ago. (laughs) Build our wooden submarines and our Native American infantry. And uh, melt Putin's heart so that he embraces us as the truth of all truth. (laughs) And with all that said, we, uh, we continue to bow our heads... 
as we know that those metal tablets are buried within the Utah desert, and we may not see them, but we feel their presence as they are present to us. <laughs> and with all that said, uh, wait, what was the, well, how do you, how do you close, Bryce? Wait, what was that Mormon Mason thing you said? So mode it be. Amen. Perfect. <laughs> Best prayer ever. <laughs> Holy shit, I'm a Mormon now. I already was, but I'm wow. headed to Illinois to dunk you right now. <laughs> I could use a good Duncan. America runs on it. 